0: Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child, who was born last December.
1: And I'm Joe. I'm dad to Esme, Lila and Nancy, who are 10, 8 and 5. I've been working on startups, in startups or with startups
0: virtually my whole career, which is about 20 years now. For our first episode, we're going to focus on the startup bit of startup dads talk about making the first step on the journey to running your own business, getting started. It can be daunting jumping into the unknown, and the first step is the biggest. So, Joe, how did it happen for you? I have
1: never really had a proper job. And in fact, the first job I ever had was for something that with retrospect, we'd say was a startup. This is back in the early 2000s when um, startups were not such a thing. I think people's perception of what a startup is was very different then. It was just a really badly organised business that was looking at how best to harness some of the opportunities that the the nascent internet was providing. Having worked for sort of a couple of, of very nascent, very badly organised companies, um, I decided that what the world really needed was me to start my own uh, very badly organised company. And so that's what I did. So there's never really been a moment where I've had to kind of look over the precipice. It's always just been a, you know, I've kind of always been paddling in
0: those waters. Was it just a natural step? Did you ever feel any trepidation about starting your business? Or was that a completely natural kind of jumping off point? Yeah, no, you see, See, that's
1: it. I think it's a mirror image because I've only actually ever worked for one corporate in my life. That was much more the, the terrifying thing stepping into a into a massive lobby with a reception desk and <laughs> 30 meter sculptures and that kind of thing and thinking, oh, crikey, how do I fit into this? Um, you know, that, that, I'd say that's probably the most trepidation I've ever had. The bit of incorporating a company or putting an idea out there or assembling, you know, a couple of people that you think can help you on the way, that's always kind of felt very natural to me. So I've not really, I've never experienced that Peering over the edge, thinking, "Oh God, are we gonna, we gonna jump
0: this one?" That's really interesting. Did your family have an entrepreneurial background? Were you surrounded by people doing kind of their own thing from an early age? Because for me, startups weren't a thing. I was kind of the biggest spectrum I had was, do you work for a consultancy or do you go and work in industry? Like that was the the, <laughs> the breadth of my potential opportunities that I foresaw. I think the graduate recruitment schemes who came to our university were very, very good at making me think that that was the only choices that, that I had. But I don't know whether you felt differently.
1: I don't think, certainly like my parents were not entrepreneurial in in that way at all. As I said, I, yeah, you know, I kind of went straight from school into working for businesses that were run by people barely older than me, certainly no better, let's say, equipped to do those things than me. And so it's always just kind of felt like um, some very natural territory to to, to step in and do that. Actually, there was a time um, the, the Prince's Trust used to provide mentorships for young people starting businesses. And I remember I did a few sessions with them and they kind of, I remember having a mentor that helped it seem very possible, you know, actually kind of talked me through the steps of Incorporating and understand what your, you know, mem and arts of your company is all about and the rudiments of putting a spreadsheet together that shows what you might earn and what you're going to be spending. But I wouldn't profess to know a huge amount about running a business right now, but certainly anything that I know about it, I've kind of picked up as a lifelong apprenticeship in doing it rather than sitting on anyone else's coattails watching them do it. It's a bit of a strange one, really. But as I said, my, my biggest fear was going into the corporate world. And you know I think if you told any company that arriving and onboarding there was going to be
0: terrifying, they'd be really upset about it. There are definitely uh, significant advantages and disadvantages to being the uh, IT administrator of your business, as well as the CEO slash co-founder. I totally understand what you mean there. You sound like a startup natural, Joe, when you, the way you talk about it. Um, What was much harder than than you thought when you set up your own business, even though you wouldn't have had a benchmark to compare against? What did you go, oh boy, this is difficult? Did you have anything that stuck out to you? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the world's understanding of what a startup is, of the nature of startups has really moved on. Um, When I used to tell people that I was self-employed in technology, kind of in the the early noughties, I think people assumed that, you know, I was already a millionaire, that it's all, you know, going (laughs) fantastically well. You know, whereas now when I tell people about my startup, they normally offer to buy my drinks for the evening. You know, people's understanding of uh, what a startup is has moved on, but also there's kind of the I don't know. I I guess I call it the art of being a failure. I think it's better understood now. Certainly, I think well, I understand it myself a lot better now. You know that as a startup founder, you're kind of you know you're the crazy kid who dared to dream something, but that does mean that you're always failing because you're kind of clinging on with blind faith that this is the idea that. The world needs, that there's you've got some kind of calling or some purpose that this product or service needs to exist. But the reality is that, you know, kind of day in, day out, stuff is not going to go that well. And it's not so much that kind of one thing is harder than expected, it's that everything is difficult. And you've just got to be kind of okay about the fact, you know, you've got to be be proud of, of trying rather than scared of failing at stuff. That focus on the Enjoying the journey and recognizing that the journey's got something to teach you, rather than that the destination is some kind of achievement that you need to um, you need to get to. That that's the thing. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've never you know, in twenty years of doing this, I've never found a kind of cadence to to start up life where there's the hard bit and the easy bit. No, every day is going to be tough. In in some particular way. But you kind of need to be all right with it. I think if you're the kind of person who took stuff very personally, you would have a really tough time of it. You know, you need that kind of resilience to recognise that today was pretty tough and tomorrow is going to be pretty tough as well. And to be honest, every day between now and the end of the year is not going to be, you know, a walk in the park. But I'm kind of okay with that. You know, I'm going to prioritise the things that are important and try and let everything else just (laughs) let's say, or try and maintain an equilibrium for for what's um, important.
0: Yeah, I I think it's a really very important point for anyone considering founding a startup. I reflect on this a lot because I think most people who set up businesses uh, in the more classical way, oh boy, we certainly are startup dads with my daughter in the background there. Sorry about that. Most people who start businesses, uh, you know, who've come from industry are generally people who've been very successful and very good at their jobs. And they're used to, you know, if there were a test, in their jobs, they'll be getting, you know, 80 or 90% in that test. I read a book recently by Ben Horowitz. He is one of the um, uh, founders of Andreessen Horowitz. They're a big American venture capital firm, a very, very celebrated venture capital firm. And he talks about that if there were a CEO test, a founder test the average mark would be 22. And you've got to kind of be okay with that being your, the standard that you know, that you can hope to achieve. Because if you're not, you know, if you aim to get 90, you just feel upset and stressed. Uh, and learning to deal with the fact that, you know, uh, it's it's hard. Yeah, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it, I think a uh, the cliche. Yeah,
1: no, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's not universally true, but I think a lot of startups are trying to do unproven things. Obviously, the business is unproven, but quite often the, the product or the service that you're trying to bring to market is also unproven. And so there's this kind of, as a, the element of, craziness to what you're doing that actually yeah you might find one customer or a couple of customers and you know kind of begin getting the ball rolling but actually it's always going to take a while before you can feel like you've ascertained beyond any reasonable level of doubt that this is a thing that the world is interested in buying and is keen to hear what you've got to say about it and i think that's always that's always going to be stressful because it, may, it makes your income feel very very precarious as a as a business and as the founder of a business let's say the challenges come pretty thick and fast and the the validations i think can be pretty sparse a lot of the time
0: for sure i suppose you know anyone listening to this podcast would think that we're being very negative about startup dads it's more like wind down dads <laughs> uh, i suppose the the, the the flip side i would I, the question i would ask you i suppose is um you know what kept you going what kept you going when you were growing your your startup and you were going through the journey so I think that that's that's a really that's a great question to say you know you
1: can kind of get downbeat on you know well what, what's difficult about it and the answer is everything. I think having great people around you is really important, and I think having people that believe in your business is is amazing. And you know something like a a co-founder or mentors can be amazing for that. Obviously, investors are. Um, I don't want to say there's good investors and bad investors, but I think some investors put money in and then see their duty as being to hold you to account for how you're spending their money, which is, you know, undeniably true to an extent. But I think there are others that really see it as building a partnership and you're providing the the knowledge and the passion and the vision for doing this, and they're providing the capital to allow you to do it. And they kind of, you know, they, they cross the water. So actually you're all on the same side. And I've had some really positive experiences with very encouraging angel investors that have just been um certainly not too sloppy in what their expectations are for how their their money gets treated but once they've made the decision to come in and back you have really been incredibly supportive almost at times where where I've kind of thought oh god you know is this is this going to work you, you know has this all just been some kind of mad flight of fancy and actually you know it it's been the angels that have said Come on, you know. Actually, this is this is fine. All we've got to do is fix this thing, and either you know, change the projections a little bit, or raise a little bit more money, or make the business a little bit more investable, one way or another. And I think that that can be really, really helpful. So yeah, for, for me, it's really about having the kinds of people around you that can um, that can pick you up when when you're on the floor a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely true. It matters much more uh, in a startup mindset, though, um, in a startup business, though. If we take it back to the fact that you you know the average score on the test is twenty two and you go God I only got twenty two, it's nice to have a co-founder or your wife or your friends or your team to go you know what twenty two is it's pretty good, you know in the grand scheme of things most people don't even try to take the test so don't feel so bad about it
1: yeah no that's it I think that's exactly right maybe that's something that comes with maturity a little bit I think back in the in the really early days of doing this you'd only need one difficult phone call or one bad meeting. I You know, I remember feeling just terrible about things. It's like, oh God, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I've really messed this up. And I think you kind of learn to have a little bit more self-belief over time. And you're like, well, you know, it's completely normal. You, you have one crappy phone call and of course you've, you're on the floor. That's 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 the nature of a crappy phone call. But if you don't need that much more perspective to be like, well, you know, that's, that's okay. I'm not going to be here forever. Let's just sort that out. And um, and get on with things. And then equally, you get these highs where when you start seeing your business working properly, and this is funny for me because I'm, I love the product building side of things, but actually shipping a product is not the bit that really kind of ticks my boxes. It's exciting, but it's a pretty, shipping a product is pretty academic before you've actually got anyone who wants to use it. Whereas the first couple of weeks where you've got people really kind of trying things out and participating and letting you know what, what doesn't work and asking you lots of questions. You know, that, that bit is just really, really nice. For sure.
0: Thinking about the early stages of a business and the bonds that you create with the people, I, I think about them as kind of three key groups of people that in a startup, I think you feel uniquely connected to all three of them simultaneously. You've got your team, you've got your investors, and you've got your very early clients. But the kind of camaraderie you feel with your team in their kind of early stages. Uh, yeah, I remember at HX, kind of the pre launch period, you know, it was pretty brutal, the run up to our product launch. I'm not going to pretend it was anything else. We were working really, really hard. But you build bonds, I think, there with people that you will never, you know, that galvanizes you in a way that it's very hard to replicate in a, a traditional, linear, standard corporate environment. Um, you came from a, from a very
1: corporate background. Almost straight out of the gate and and into the corporate world, and did that you know, had a good long swing at that. Um, I'm sure we'll get to the you know the startup story behind HX at some point. What struck me, I guess, is that you are such an inveterate networker. You're great at interrogating people. You know, you love to get the story. You love to talk about things, and I kind of get the feeling you're always just making notes and learning and you know, paying attention to things. You must have counseled a thousand people or sought counselor from a thousand people on this idea of yours you've got. I'm just really intrigued. What's the worst piece of a startup advice you've ever been given?
0: Do <laughs> um, you know? I'm an actuary by training, which I don't think they're legendary for their networking skills. Um, so I suppose uh, relatively I'm um, pretty good at networking. I've never really seen it as that. I think, you know, I, I'm very interested to learn from anyone and everyone that I can speak to in in pretty much anything I do. It's a big part of my life philosophy, which is maybe why I'm a startup founder. But with that in mind, I suppose to answer your question, I don't think I can say I have been given really terrible advice from anyone. The one thing I would say is that when I was setting up HX, you know, when I told people that I wanted to do it, because, again, it took me a little bit longer to to take the leap, but I sought a lot of counsel. You're absolutely right. I I did find myself... I got very extreme views on what I should do when I told people that I wanted to quit my very cushy job. You know, I hadn't got, had kids. I wanted to have kids, uh, as you can hear from the background here. Uh, and I was about to embark on a, a you know, a pretty intense business uh, startup journey. I, I got very, two very distinct camps I found, and they were quite extreme. Uh, I'm generally, you know, again, life philosophy. I try and stay away from extremist viewpoints in either direction, philosophically and politically. Uh, But one group was, this is an absolutely terrible idea. You shouldn't at all do it. You've got a mortgage to pay. Um, You know, you want to have kids. How are you going to uh, provide for them? You know, and then I got uh, obliquely related to that. I got, well, you know, how will you do things like HR? You know, you don't have the first clue. You're an actuary. You do do sums for a living. Uh, How on earth are you going to do all of that? So that was one group of advice I got. And then actually, uh, equally unhelpfully, on the other end of the spectrum, I got the Amrit, you, you know, you've never failed at anything. Uh, you know, this is going to be a slam dunk. You're going to be a trillionaire. Of course you should do it. Just like, go do it right now. You know, and I, I feel like I could have told my, my friends that I was making marshmallows. I was going to set up a purple marshmallow factory. And they'd have been like, yep, yeah, sounds fantastic. Like, go ahead. So, you know, I think both those views, uh, they're not particularly helpful. That was the thing that struck me is there was very little middle ground about, okay, you want to set a startup up. This is what you should do. And, you know, the biggest thing I've learned is, you know, as a startup founder, you need to have a plan. It doesn't need to be a detailed, super granular, precise, numerically backed plan. It needs to be sound, and you might want to use some numbers as part of that. Um, Maybe I wasn't in the startup world back then. I've met lots of people, yourself included, who've given me much more sound, uh, relevant advice. But I got a, a lot of advice that I don't think was of any value Back to what I
1: was saying earlier though. do you think there is something helpful in having a few people around you
0: that you can rely on to just be relentless supporters? That's a fair point. Uh, You know, and I was thinking, actually, it's not fair to say it doesn't have any value because faith is very important. And a little bit of unconditional love and faith is really valuable. And I certainly, you know, uh, HX's investors, some of them are uh, friends and family. They've been an incredible pillar of support Uh, and not really anything to do with HX in any way, shape or form, but just to do with me, Uh, because, you know, part of HX is me uh, and my ability to keep going is a big part of that. So, yeah, you're right. That on reflection, as you say, you know, you're going to be fine. Maybe that's a, a completely legitimate form of advice in a different way, maybe counsel rather than advice.
1: I mean, I guess another way of looking at it is, is there any advice that you've taken and acted upon that you've subsequently wished you hadn't?
0: Um. Do you know, one piece of advice that sticks with me in my mind when I think about HX is, I think there is a, a sense of get on with it and do it quickly. Uh, and therefore, you know, when it comes to raising money or seeking investors or getting started, you know, the, that kind of time is of the essence, crack on and do it now. I certainly felt a reasonable amount of uh, uh, maybe not pressure is the wrong word, but, the, you know, the general consensus from uh, quite a lot of people was that you should just get on and get the business started. And, you know, one thing I would say about getting a startup going is that once it starts, by definition, I suppose, it's a startup, it's it's not going anywhere. And once you're on that train, you're really on that train. And, you know, I think there are certain things I would do, maybe not much more, but a little bit more planning and thinking about uh, the direction I wanted to take in advance I think that's advice I'd give to myself, again, is that, you know, if you've got a really great idea, you can take a little bit more time. There are very few ideas, I think, in the world where the kind of ideas where you have to blitz scale. uh, And if you're not first to to market, uh, you're last. You know, I'm sure there are lots of those. The business I've set up with my co-founder is not one of those. I mean, it's interesting. Do you
1: think you've become more or less fatalistic since you've been running
0: a startup? Uh, that's a really good question. It's a, a deeply philosophical question. Sorry, the sort of question I love, by the way, <laughs> a deeply philosophical question. Um, I think that I've become, I've become a little bit less fatalistic. Actually, there is an aspect of of running your business that is attributable to chance, and I'd say particularly at the very beginning. The one thing I'd say is I have a spectacular team, and you know, the first stage. Uh, of of setting up HX, finding people, convincing them to work on this idea that Michael, my co-founder and I had, we got incredibly lucky with the first few people and we've continued to get lucky with the people that we found. Uh, And there's definitely luck in that. Uh, And as I've realized, you know, building a tech startup in London, you know, that was definitely luck because tech hiring in London deserves its own uh, podcast episode, I think. But as time's gone on and the business has become, you know, moved a little bit away from being more sensitive to, to shocks, if you will. Changes in the environment, in our client circumstances, in the market circumstances, as we've become a little bit more resilient and and we have grown, I certainly feel much, much more in control of my own destiny, which is definitely a double edged sword because that means that there, ultimately there's also no one that I can blame but myself if it goes <laughs> uh, uh, hmm. in the wrong direction. And do you do more planning now? Do you, you know? I, I do better planning now, I think. I did a lot of planning at the beginning. And I think, you know, I think it's advice that I'd give to myself learning to plan the things that you really can control and not plan for things that actually, if you look at them with a really uh, critical lens, the proportion of the variables that you can control in the plan is relatively small. In any given plan, is quite small and you should focus on those. Um, This is still something I'm trying to work on and get better. You know, when you think about sales, for example, there are actually a very small number of levers that you can genuinely control. I think, you know, I also, as HX has grown and I have a great team, I have a little bit more time to plan you know at the beginning i had to set up our hr policy on the bus i'll never forget that you know going to see my, my family for some food with my laptop at the back of the 176 bus writing our hr policy going boy this is not what you signed up for when you said you were going to build a an analytical technology startup i think i want to see your hr policy now <laughs> I, I i want to say that it has been replaced like many things that i built in hx a professional has come along uh, uh, and replaced it. I, I think my front end, my user interface code was, I can't tell tell you whether it was better or worse than the HR policy, actually. I'd like to think <laughs> it was better, but you'd have, to, you'd have to ask my team. Obviously, we're kind
1: of, um. we said we wanted to talk about startups and family and trying to do a startup when you've got a family and trying to do a family when you've got a startup. What's been your biggest collision between work
0: and family so far? I would say the biggest shift for me personally has been the imposition and requirement uh, uh, of a, a much more structured routine to my day. Um, I have been extremely lucky that for my whole life, I have done a job that I have loved. I've loved it and I've been pretty good at it. And Those things probably correlated. I'm an actuary, sorry, so there has to be at least one mathematical term in the podcast. You know, those things are correlated. And as a result, I have spent a much larger amount of my, my life working than the average person. Uh, And I've done that willingly and gladly and happily, and I have grown and been successful because of that. And that's meant that, you know, if I felt like working really late one day, I could just keep going. Or if I wanted to do a little bit of work, uh, get up in the morning and do a little bit more or work on the weekends, I could do that. Um, Nowadays, Evie, my little girl, she, uh, you know, her routine drives the day. Uh, And so at 7.30 every morning, it kind of really doesn't really matter what else I'm doing, how important it is to HX or myself, Ev needs to wake up and she gets priority. And, you know, more than anything else, she doesn't really care, right? She doesn't give her about what I'm doing because at that point, you know, her, her wonderful, simple and developing brain goes, right, it's time to get up. It's time for me to have my nappy changed and get some clothes on. So, you know, that's a big, big part of that because, you know, I, have, I had a routine previously, but it was much more fluid and there's no room. For fluidity. You know, children are optimized to exploit a moment of weakness in the fluidity of a routine. (laughs) Um, And the the other thing I would say is, you know, managing my time and the space around Evie's requirements requires planning. And again, um, HX's philosophy driven by me is you have lots of trust, lots of accountability and lots of flexibility to do your job. So I often, you know, will have Evie with me if it's a meeting that I'm not an active participant in. Or uh, uh, actually where it's something that, you know, we're just having a all hands at the end of the week or, you know, we're having a drink or something like that. <laughs> uh, we had a new joiner recently uh, who wasn't at all primed for the fact that Evie comes to some of these meetings. And we had a remote meeting, so I had my camera off and he was just doing his introduction. And then Evie expressed her opinion very strongly about what he was saying uh, in, in her way, which is, you know, via gibberish. And I will never forget his face because uh, <laughs> he, he must have been thinking... That is a really strange that, you know, what is going on there. If you're not ready for that, that's going to surprise you on a call, isn't it? I think he was wondering: Is this some sort of very strange test? You know, I'm doing my morning stand-up and now someone is making very peculiar noises. So, you know, there are, there are I wouldn't necessarily call it collisions, but it certainly requires uh, being able to manage your time uh, and your space is a, a much bigger challenge. As you can tell, given that Evie has been having her midday post-nap cry slash scream uh, in the background. Uh, but it's all doable. It's all doable. Do you think you spend less time working now than
1: you used to? Like, are you are you more rigorous
0: at protecting your free time? Definitely, definitely. I mean, again, I'm very, very lucky. You know, Sarah, my wife, is incredibly accommodating. Uh, you know, we we always joke, she knew what she was getting herself in for when she married me. In that, you know, I, my job and my work is a big part of my passion and what I like doing. And Sarah's always been very, very flexible about accommodating, you know, before Evie was born, the ebbs and flows of startup life. But, you know, we have different priorities now and I certainly work less. You know, um, HX's culture uh, allows me to work very hard while having Evie and not begrudge it. And we do that by being flexible, which I think is broadly becoming the default, widely accepted, most sensible, pragmatic way to live your life and work nowadays. I'm not going to pretend that all the time I want to work less. Sometimes I want to work more. Uh, Because I love my job and I love my business. uh, I love my daughter more than any of those things. But um, yeah, I would say absolutely in aggregate, I work less. Have you found yourself sat at the kitchen table at three in the
1: morning, you know, warming up a bottle at the same time as trying to get a couple of emails out?
0: I, I have. And you know, what will make me laugh, what's made me laugh more than anything else is that I have sent emails out at the most ungodly hours to people and not because I had any expectation of responses and I've had responses from people. And in my mind, I'm thinking, do you have a baby that also simultaneously needs her bottle warmed at this time? Like why? I hope you don't think that I needed a response then. You know, again, there's lots of talk about this that you should put at the bottom of your emails. I'm sending you an email because it's, this time works for me. It doesn't have to work for you. Uh, I think I'd probably keep the hours of a 19 year old university student in a perverse sort of way. I'm just doing things which are substantially more mundane Uh, in that I'm awake at two o'clock in the morning and at five o'clock in the morning, but I'm definitely not hungover or incapacitated at either of those times, apart from maybe by lack of sleep. Have you had naps during the day? Um, I would say I've had um, apocalyptic crashes in the middle (laughs) of the day where I've just fallen asleep, Uh, but not so much, not so much. We joked at HX at the beginning, uh, you know, when we were post-seed, but still, you know, very much kind of doing everything ourselves. We joked about getting a sofa bed in the office. Uh, We never did, but I would have, you know, if the world were slightly less strange right now, well, maybe not strange is the wrong word, if the world were uh, as it were six months ago, I definitely would have been putting the uh, bed to use for a nap. Uh, You see, I've always felt that a snooze after lunch is like the last workplace
1: taboo. It's um, unless you're in Spain, in which case I think it's the rigueur.
0: <laughs> it's funny you say that. My co-founder, uh, Michael, he he's a big fan of a nap, a power nap. And he was saying one of the biggest things he was looking forward to about being a co-founder is that he could totally normalize the postprandial dip. I'm totally fine with it. I, I, I'm sure uh, it's going to happen at some point when I'm back in the office. <laughs> Talking of taking afternoon naps
1: on the sofa, let's move on to talk about some of the hardest working people we know with our regular segment, Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a little bit of light on some of the organisations that we really respect working in this space. Startup Shoutouts. Hamrit, do you
0: want to tell me your, um, your startup shoutout? Sure thing. So I am a massively enthusiastic amateur computer programmer. As I said uh, previously, we have professionals who actually build the, the software that HX has made. But one of the things I like to do is learn new and interesting programming languages in the in the microseconds of spare time that I have. and I found a startup that makes it really really easy uh, for you to do this by writing code within your web browser. Learning to code, learning to write code is a challenge unto itself, but nowadays actually involves installing a lot of tooling and kit before you write any code. I found recently a startup called Replit, R-E-P-L dot I-T. Um, We can link to it uh, in the show notes. And Replit have built a in-browser development environment, IDE is what it's called, Integrated Development Environment, which allows you to write code uh, in loads and loads of different languages, basically without any setup. So it massively lowers the barriers to entry for uh, a beginner programmer who wants to pick up and try something new. I've been playing with it. I've really enjoyed using it. It has worked on my iPad in a a, a remarkable way. So I've been able to practice a little bit of programming on my tablet as much as needing a, uh, without needing a full-on setup. And I've just been generally very impressed with it. It's been easy to use. It's got a nice development experience. Their user interface is great. And I really like it. So shout out to Replit. See, I think I'm enough of a geek that I need to give that a go. It
1: sounds great. Um, So I wanted to shout out to some friends of mine uh, that run a company called Not Lost and it's at notlost.co. They came at the startup world with this idea that planet Earth needed a better solution to lost and found and that universally losing stuff is just such a miserable experience and trying to get it back very rarely improves that experience. So they set about designing what the perfect lost and found experience should look like, did a ton of work with venue operators, transport operators, local authorities, you name it, figuring out how they could how could they they could make this work. I did some of the kind of technical discovery work with them and they were just up for everything. You know, it's just brilliant. So there's natural language programming sort of with um a chat bot so you can just explain what the problem is without needing to tie up customer service people to file your your lost report. They've got image recognition so that if people take a picture of what they've found, it will categorize it and match it. They've got like weighted algorithms so that if the Description of what's been lost does not quite match what's been found. It will arrive at a, a probability score of likelihood of this thing. You know, so it's really kind of proper nerdy stuff going on, but just really well put together. Great product, very, very tightly bound to usability. They've been absolutely flying for a little while now. It's one of the least glamorous industries I think I've, I could name, but they've done really well. I think if you If you lose your phone at a gig at the O2, leave your coat on Eurostar, then their software will will help you find it. And I just love the way that they've uh, brought so much 21st century thinking to a really old and, and let's say, fairly boring problem. It's just been great to see. Love
0: those guys. I love those startup ideas where, you know, as soon as you hear it, you think that is just a great idea and you never would have thought about it until someone brings it up. So best of luck to them. I think that takes us to the end of episode one, the inaugural episode of Startup Dads. I had a lot of fun doing that. I think Evie, despite her her screams, also had a lot of fun. Miraculously, my kids have been out of the room
1: for 50 minutes straight through, uh, which is actually deeply concerning all by itself. Now I've just got my head full of terrifying thoughts about what they're to.
0: <laughs> On that note, we should probably wrap it up there then. I'll uh, see you next week.